All right, good morning, everybody. Thanks, Bruce. <laughs> All right, hopefully that's not too loud. Thank you, Joe, for that introduction. As you said, my name's Katie graves -Aby. I think I know most of you, but some of, if you don't, um, it's nice to talk to you. I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. I was born at 7,000 feet, high up in the mountains of Arizona. Not necessarily a place you think of with lots of mountains, but Flagstaff was a cold and often snowy mountain town. It was a great place to be a kid. We, my sister and I grew up riding our bikes to the ditch pool. We would make snow forts. We would do the reckless things that kids of the 80s would do. We would attach like skateboards to the back of our bikes and then go flying through the neighborhood. We had a very good time being kids. It was also a place where, apart from the kids at the nearby Navajo reservation, um, most of the people that I was around looked like me and talked like me. Then when I was 10 years old, my dad joined the State Department. And our first post was in many ways the exact opposite of Flagstaff. We moved to Kinshasa, which was then Zaire. It's now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So it's um, sub-Saharan Africa, kind of right on the equator. So very tropical, very hot. Um, it was my first experience being in a place where nobody looked like me. Nobody spoke the language I spoke. I felt very much like the stranger or the outsider or the alien. I felt like I did not fit in. It was also my first experience witnessing extreme poverty. There was certainly poverty in Arizona, and I think to the shame of our country, a lot of that poverty was um, concentrated on, on all the Native American reservations that were nearby, but the poverty in the Congo was just an entirely different magnitude. It took a little while, but we began to settle into life in Kinshasa. After a few months, our sea freight arrived, so we had our stuffed animals and our toys and our books again. My sister and I started school at the American school, and we made friends. And around town, the Congolese were just extremely loving to children. So we were doted on, and we were cared for. We got used to boiling our water, to power outages, to just life in a different place. And then things changed. In a country with enormous inequality, there were regular skirmishes. But in the fall of 1991, things moved from skirmishes to full-scale riots. Congolese soldiers participated in a mutiny against the government of Mobutu Sese Seko. He was a dictator who had ruled the Congo for decades. And I'm going to make sure that stops. Like feedback, is that better? Okay. He had ruled the Congo for decades and had amassed like hundreds of millions of dollars in wealth and had not shared any of that with his people. So the Congolese soldiers ran a mutiny against that against his government. And the week of the riots, it was just, it was a very strange week. My dad, who's here today, was back in the States for business. And so it was my mom and my sister and I. Um, on Friday afternoon, my mom picked us up from school and we drove right into one of the riots, into the center of a riot. To her credit, my mom was very calm. The, um, the rioters looked into our car, saw there were kids and said, okay, let them pass. Because again, children were just loved in a very deep way. And from that point on, we were confined to the compound. My sister, Megan, decided we had to be ready to go at a moment's notice, so she insisted that we slept in our clothes. My mom is laughing because she remembers she really did insist. She tried to make us sleep with our backpacks on so we could just jump up and leave, but my mom and I decided we would not do that. Um, we packed a, a single bag, and then we just waited. We watched as people would pass by the compound carrying weapons or goods that they had looted, including in one very strange case, a man who was carrying a toilet on his head and then flashing like a victory sign at us. It was... A very surreal week. Um, later, after a week, the word came that we were going to be evacuated out. So we were put in a van. We were driven through just the devastated streets of Kinshasa. 
And then we were put on a ferry across the Congo River, and then eventually we were put on a plane, and we got sent back to the States. And during that whole period, I think my concerns were somewhat what you would expect. I was scared, of course, but my mom was just a rock. She's a great person to have in a crisis because she finds humor in really dark situations. Um, I was worried because the American government made us leave our four cats behind, and I, we were very sad about that, but in a lovely turn of events, Jane Goodall happened to be in country at the time, and she sent them, she got them all sent back to us safely. I was sad that my, I was having to leave my friends behind and my things behind, but I was grateful that I was going to safety. So I was concerned about myself, and I was concerned about my family. Once we got back to the States and time went on, my dad got sent actually back to Kinshasa, but the rest of us, my mom and my sister and I stayed in Virginia. I became somewhat haunted by an immense sense of guilt and outrage. Guilt that when things became really dangerous in a place where just simply being born was dangerous, I got to leave, right? And not only was I allowed to leave, but I was given all the resources that I needed to leave. Not because I did anything to deserve that, I mean, but simply because of the country that I had been born in, my citizenship, and the fact that my dad worked for the American government. There were many, many more deserving people than me, moms, dads, babies, who just, should I pull it out more? Wanna just use this one? Is this one on? Does that work? So there were many, I think, people who were much more deserving of me, just like regular parents, who weren't allowed or even given a chance to leave when things became dangerous. So I felt a lot of guilt about that. And then slowly that guilt became kind of an outrage, you know? Outrage that there was just this enormous inequality in the world. Outrage that some of us had enough. We had enough food, we had enough water, we had enough shelter, we had enough protection, and then others didn't even have close to enough. It just, I was just outraged by it all. And for a very long time, that outrage prevented me from believing in God. I was just angry about it. I had grown up going to church on Christmas and Easter, and I was... I was very fortunate to be born with really fabulous parents. They're here today. They are kind and thoughtful and tried to teach me to be thoughtful of others. But when I was little, faith just wasn't a huge part of our lives. As I got older, I felt pulled to learn more about Jesus, but I just kept coming back to those images of the Congo and just wondering why in the world was that allowed? Um, our post after Congo was Rabat in Morocco, and we began attending the local non-denominational English-speaking church. It was a church that was filled with people who just, they were, they were clearly loved Jesus and they were earnest about sharing that love in very real and practical ways. And it, it was a very good place for me. The magnitude of that love became clear when we faced just a horrible tragedy. A friend and a classmate of mine who was just 14 years old at the time died by suicide. And the people of the church just came out and just surrounded us in love. But that death just really intensified my struggle to believe. After Morocco, we came back to the States. We were here, actually. We were in Springfield, Virginia, nearby. And unlike the international schools I'd gotten used to, I have to say the, the high school in Springfield was not particularly welcoming to new kids. So I took to eating lunch in like the stairwell, or I'd ask teachers, hey, can I study in your classroom during lunch? <laughs> but then I eventually realized there were two groups of kids who were pretty willing to be kind to the new kids. And they were the Jesus kids and the theater kids. So I got involved in every theater production that you could, and I started eating lunch with the Jesus kids. And once again, I was just really impressed that the people who knew Jesus well were kind and welcoming and thoughtful, that there was something there. I could see there was something there. 
And as a small aside to anybody here who is still in school, I would just beg you to be kind to the new kids. It just means a lot. Our final, our post, our final post, post while I was living home with my parents my senior year of high school was Paris, France. And once again, I sought out the local English-speaking congregation, and I decided that I wanted to be baptized. I still just couldn't understand this problem of suffering and injustice, but I decided I could accept that God clearly knew more than I did, and somehow he was going to make it right. He was big enough to deal with this, even if I didn't understand how. I went to college in New York City that year, and I met Troy a few weeks after I arrived. We got married in June 2001, and that was the summer between my junior and senior year. So we rented a little apartment in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and he commuted back to grad school in New Jersey, and I commuted back to Manhattan for school. And then on a crisp and beautiful September morning later that year, two planes flew into the World Trade Center. I was uptown in Upper Manhattan, and we watched all the smoke from the towers with my friends. And in the days that followed, I felt a lot like when we were in the Congo. I was fine, my loved ones were all fine, everybody I knew was okay, but we were just in the midst of a city that was heavy with grief. Just everywhere you went, it was just heavy. Troy and I had been attending a church in New Jersey at this time, but the Sunday after the attacks, we decided to go back to the church that we had attended in Manhattan, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Pastor Tim Keller's sermon that Sunday impacted me deeply and changed the way I think about injustice and suffering. The first thing he talked about was Lazarus. So for anybody who doesn't know the story, Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. They were friends and disciples of Jesus. Jesus loved them deeply. Um, Jesus received a message from Mary and Martha saying that Lazarus was very ill and that they wanted Jesus to come heal him. Jesus waited a couple days before he turned back towards Lazarus, and then during that delay, Lazarus died. So I'm going to pick up the story and read a fairly long section from John 11:17 to 44. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when, Jesus, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, 
said, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing here around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So the first thing that Pastor Tim Keller pointed out when he was reading this story was that Jesus clearly knew all along that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? It's not like this was a surprise. Um, And a little before the part where I started reading, he even says, this illness doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that all this sadness and misery and horribleness was going to be great in a few seconds. So he could have said to Mary, just stop crying. It's going to be awesome. Just wait and see what I'm going to do. But he didn't do that. Despite the fact that he knew what was going to happen, he joined in Mary's grief with her. He didn't ignore the grief and the sadness. He stayed there and he wept. He is perfect and he loves us, so he doesn't close his heart to our grief even when he knows in the end that it's going to be made all right. And to me, that was just such an important revelation. We have a God who loves us so much that he will come down and he will live in our grief with us, even when he knows the end. And it was important for me to hear that, to see that Jesus was weeping with us when people were dying in the Congo or by suicide or in the streets of Manhattan. The second thing that really struck with me from that sermon was when Pastor Keller kind of asked us the same question that Jesus asked Martha. He asked us if we really believed, if we really believed in the truth of Jesus, in the cross, in the resurrection, in the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. His point was that if we really believe, Jesus isn't here to give us consolation, just to give us words of hope when we feel down, but rather he's coming with resurrection, and resurrection power is something entirely different. He's not saying he's going to remove us from this broken world and take us to a place where everything's just a little bit better. But instead, God's going to bring the power of heaven down to earth and cleanse and renew and perfect our world and restore the things that have been lost, incorporate these horrific things that we have seen happen into a glory that is coming in such a way that we can't even imagine the beauty of it. I don't claim to understand how that's all going to look. Although there is a cool Bible project video I would recommend that people watch on kind of how heaven and earth come together, which is a cool illustration. But it challenged me to question, like, if I really believe, if I really say I believe in Jesus, do I really believe all of it? Can I really accept the actual glory in the end? Over the years, I have found great hope, both in believing in the promise of what's to come and in the knowledge that Jesus is with us in the here and now. I've always worked in the nonprofit world. I spent many years working on HIV-AIDS issues in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, And as Joe mentioned, for the past six years, I have worked for an organization called Neighbors Link. It's a community center based back in New York, and we work with immigrants. We try to bring together long-term residents and newer neighbors to make a community where everybody can thrive. Um, Even after moving to Maryland, they were kind enough to let me continue working there, so I get to go back often. I really love my job, and I am grateful for the opportunity that I have to work in that field. Um, At the same time, though, in that kind of work, you often end up witnessing just injustice. And I am still often filled with outrage at the atrocities that I see humans inflict upon each other. It makes me angry. But at the same time, I have deep, deep hope. 
I know that Christ is not an impartial bystander in all of this. He is living with us in the midst of people's grief and fear and outrage. And he is outraged with us even when he knows the ending and knows that it's all going to be made right. This hope allows me to try to do my little bit, to weep with those who are weeping, to engage when I feel exhausted, to not look away when someone is hurt, to try to remember the immense mercy that has been extended to me and extend a little grace to others, even when I often fail at that. I want to end by mentioning some of my favorite books of all times, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, The title of my message today was, Will All Sad Things Come Untrue? So for those of you who know and love the books like I do, you might recognize that as the moment when Sam and Frodo have gone to Mordor, they've done what they've been sent to do, and now they think they're left to perish at what seems to be the end of the world, right? So Sam Gamgee thinks everything is lost and done. And instead, what happens is he wakes up and he finds that not only is he not dead, but Gandalf, who he was sure had perished, is there with him. And that's the moment when he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I myself was dead. Will all sad things come untrue? And for those of us who believe in the ultimate hope of Christ, the answer, to quote Tim Keller, is yes, everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. And I'd like to close with a prayer that's been attributed to St. Francis. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.